The follow-up is simple. Ask a question, listen to the answer, then follow up. I'm your host, Noah Kozlov. Enjoy. The follow-up today is with attorney James Petkin. He's counsel at the global law firm Reed Smith. He's been a friend of mine for just about 20 years. He spent nine years in the government Eight years in the United States Department of Justice as an assistant U.S. attorney in Philadelphia, where he focused on fraud and white-collar crimes and also in Washington, D.C. on violent crimes. And he led investigations and prosecution of over 250 criminal cases. So what I would ask you, James, today is, is our legal system in good hands? Well, Noah, uh, yeah, I would say that, yes, our legal system is in good hands. You know, I think a lot's being made in the media, perhaps rightfully so, about sort of sustained attacks on the system from various places. But at the end of the day, you know, the Constitution is still intact and there are still well-intentioned federal and state judges across the country at trial, appellate and Supreme Court levels who are doing the best they can, I think, to interpret the law and be fair. So, you know, there's a lot of muckety-muck stuff happening everywhere. That's always the case. But the rule of law in our country, I think, is strong. Um, you know, does it always work at all times? No, yeah, because it's administered and run by people who are flawed inherently. But uh, so far, it's the best system that we've devised. And really, it's one of the best I think the world has ever devised in terms of fairness. That is the point. So I think we're in good shape. And having spent so much time in the government, how how much of your job and then how much of the day to day of the legal system is impacted by the president and also the attorney general? Well, I mean, that's sort of a broad question. As a prosecutor, you know, it's, I would say, not as much as people might think. You know, I'm a, I was a line assistant, right? A line assistant on the front line, interacting with the court and interacting with, you know, the cases that we dealt with in the courtroom. So does it matter what the president or what the attorney general is doing in Washington? You know, not really. At a higher level, at a leadership level of the U.S. Attorney's offices and the Department of Justice, there are certain policies that are, you know, that the higher-ups can go after. There are certain types of cases perhaps the department might want to bring, yeah, and they can change certain priorities. But at the end of the day, as me as a fraud prosecutor, you know, going after criminals who are running fraud schemes, yeah, not much really changes no matter what's happening at the top. All right, so being a prosecutor, and, and look, when I go on radio live, television live, I, I get certain butterflies, and I, don't, I think it's natural. When you have to step in front of a jury in a courtroom to give an opening statement, do you feel the same way? Of course, of course. I mean, I don't think you'd be normal if you didn't feel some butterflies sometimes. I think it depends on the magnitude of the case. You know, if it's a, a larger case that is, where there's media attention, you might be more nervous than a smaller case where, you know, there's not really much as, as many eyes on you. But yeah, I mean, you're when you stand up to give the opening, you're going in front of 14 jurors, you know, 12 actual jurors and potentially two alternates who don't know anything about you, who don't know anything about the case, who don't know anything about really why they're there, and they're looking to trust somebody. So, yeah, you get up, you're nervous, but that's part of the fun. I mean, that's part of the game is to ride ride your emotions into giving a better performance. So, yeah, you're definitely nervous, but uh, that usually goes away pretty quick, too. You, you say your opening piece for 30 seconds, and then you're, you're, you hit the ground running, and you're good. How do you practice beforehand? <laughs> good question. So... Uh, the way, you know, I, well, formally, when you're a prosecutor, at least in Philadelphia at the U.S. Attorney's Office, you moot it or you practice your opening for supervisors and other people in the office to give you advice. I also would often, you know, to get out of like the lawyer world, would do it in front of my wife or in front of friends or family 
and practiced a few nights before, it's, I find those people who can give equally important advice as folks inside, because like my wife doesn't know the case. She is looking for a reason to care. She can tell me if something's unclear, you know, if like that didn't make any sense or why didn't you say that? Or well, why that does, you know, clear that up. So uh, you just practice by, you know, by, by running over it, doing dry runs the night before, the nights before. How do, how do you handle constructive criticism from your wife and friends? I, I get it from Marissa. I get it from my parents still. How do, how do you handle it? Uh, it's fine. I mean, it's, it's good. Because, like an example would be I had a, a lengthy trial last fall uh, involving like payday lending and illegal loans. And I did the practice moot in front of my wife who said, well, why didn't you say, you know, in this opening statement, you're going to hear from victims. And at the time, we didn't know if we were going to call any victims. She's like, well, you really need a victim. Like, as a juror, the juror wants to know that real people were affected. So then we went out to find victims and did, in fact, call a school teacher from Nebraska uh, at our trial to testify. So the criticism from my wife, but warranted criticism because she's you know, not part of this case that I've been part of for a long time and can sometimes bring clearer eyes you know, when you're looking down from 1,000 feet up. Right, so, so, then, that's yeah, so, so then in that case – you want the you want the the jury to feel those emotions. How how much how much do you how much do emotions play into, or did they play into your cases as a sure. assistant U.S. attorney? Emotions are a huge part of the deal because you know what you're doing as a prosecutor affects people's lives, right? It affects there are lots of in any case. There are lots of people, human beings, who have been hurt or affected. That ranges from the victims of crimes to their friends and family to the organizations or companies that are targeted. And also on the other side, you know, the people who committed the crimes, you know, their friends, their family, it has effects on their, that person. You know, they're affected too. So uh, in any case, emotions of folks as you're running a grand jury investigation, as you're talking to people, issuing you know, subpoenas and search warrants to get information – dealing with human beings and why they're lying to you or why they're telling the truth and sort of navigating that web, that's part of the game um, to get to the truth, which is the ultimate, the ultimate goal. And I got to imagine it plays a pretty heavy role in sentencing, huh, in those suggestions? Yeah. I mean, sentencings are, you know, for those who haven't seen them, because they don't really show that on TV, that's, you know, those are usually two months after a conviction, two months after trial or after somebody pleads. The judge has to have like a, a long, like a 20 or 30 page report generated on the person, the defendant's life and history and characteristics and the story of the crime to help the judge come to a more fair sentence. So you come back for sentencing. Yeah. And they're intense because, you know, a person or people are about to lose the most essential and fundamental thing they have, which is their liberty. Right. They're going into a cage, into a box, into prison. And so those can be fraught with emotion always. You know, on one hand, the government's job is to represent the victims of crimes who feel rightfully so, like they want, you know, they should have their voices heard and there should be punishment. But on the flip side, the defendants, you know, want to have perhaps a lesser sentence. They believe that other mitigating factors may be at play. Uh, definitely can be emotional experiences. Uh, interesting on a human level, but, you know, certainly can be sad. All right. The show Billions. How real is it? Uh, not real. I mean, super enjoyable, you know, Axe Cap and, uh, and, uh, Chuck Rhodes, great stuff. But, uh, you know, I, I kind of always laugh when they have, you know, the U.S., the AUSAs in, in the uh, Manhattan U.S. Attorney's Office in the show have like a file, a single piece of paper and a little blue file makes up a case file where in real life, you know, cases are rooms and rooms full of paper. I think in certain ways for the uh, expediency of the show, they have to move things faster. It's, it's really enjoyable, but you know, in one scene, like an AUSA punches, Brian Connerty punches uh, like, a, like a, a witness or a target. That, that doesn't happen. I think there's a lot more 
backroom shady dealing happening in billions than happens in real life. I think things hopefully in real life are more on the up and up than U.S. attorneys cutting deals with judges. You know, that, I, I don't know that to be true or ever have happened before. But do, do people in your profession then – are there – are people split? Are there some people who roll their eyes at billions versus you who can just simply be entertained? Um, I think that AUSAs have its, you know, it's, it's, if anyone, those would be the folks who would roll their eyes because it literally shows about our job uh, or the job I did. So I don't, I think the profession, you know, there's a lot of different kinds of lawyers, transactional lawyers, litigators, real estate, IP, tax. So for criminal prosecutors, you know, I think that they would know. I think that a lot of the profession doesn't have much insight into what happens day to day at a U.S. attorney's office. So I'm not sure that those folks would roll their eyes any more than a person who actually is in the job. I don't know. How about the people that are in that show? Some seem to be lifers. Others struggle with, do I go to a big law firm sure. to make money? Is, sure. is that realistic? Yeah, uh, definitely. You know, in, in billions, so the U.S. attorney's office in Manhattan, the Southern District, you know, I think folks, my friends who've been there, generally do leave after four or five years or six years, seven years. Uh, in Philadelphia, there tended to be more folks who stayed for their whole careers. Um, that's awesome. You know, career dedicated servants for the, is it's a great thing, and I wish I could have perhaps done it. But, you know, for me and for lots of folks who do the job, financial considerations come into play. Obviously, the government is nonprofit and doesn't pay the same as private practice. It's an amazing job. It's a meaningful job. It's a fascinating job. Um, but for me, there came a point where it was time to, you know, start saving for college for kids. Uh, for folks who stay forever, perhaps, you know, they can make it work, and that's awesome. But for lots of folks, probably more than half, they leave after a certain period of time to seek other things because they have to go make a living. Why isn't the pay even close to equal? Well, that's you know, an easy question to answer because the United States of America is not a for-profit corporation. It's the government, yeah. right? It's, it's not a company where profits are the name of the game. So they, the government can't – the government's in debt, right? So the government can't pay – lawyers as much as firms can because firms are earning money by charging clients and clients are paying. Uh, so a little bit different motivation there. There, the motivation is just doing justice. In the law firm world, it's business, right? You're doing business. So uh, the government can't pay private rates and that's okay. I mean, I, it's an amazing job and it attracts people who want to fulfill you know, their desire to do public service, which is awesome. What, what was that application process like for you? So to be an AUSA, taking it back to me to 2010, you know, I, I applied to be an AUSA uh, all over the country, um, as far west as Oregon, as far south as Florida, and ultimately got it in D.C. Um, you have a couple rounds of interviewing. Every office is different, um, where you have to actually do a, a mock opening statement like you're in a trial, and then there are hypotheticals. People ask you all these different facts or questions that have no correct factual answer. They just want to hear how you think. Um, and there are a couple rounds. Uh, it takes two or three months, at least it did for me then, and then you get the job. Huh. And then, so you know when a phone call is coming? Is this akin to uh, a college acceptance? No, uh, definitely not. I mean, you you have no control and no knowledge of the timeline that's happening. You're totally at their whim. I have lots of friends who've gone through the process who, uh, you know, me too, when I applied to other offices, you never hear back. You make it through one round, and then you never hear back after that. You have really no idea what's happening on the other side, uh, but at some point a call comes from the U.S. attorney offering you the job, and that's kind of what you're hoping for from the beginning. All right, so what, what was that day like? Uh, it was great. I was at the lunch uh, at a sandwich place in, in, uh, in Philly. I remember it, and uh, saw the, the 202 number coming in from the U.S. attorney, knew who it was, uh, excused myself from lunch to take the call, and uh, it's great. I mean, you know, it's an exciting day when you get the job you're trying to get. So then, so how is day to day? And I know you've only been at Reed Smith for a few weeks now, but how is day to day different? I, I would assume that it's drastically different. 
Yeah, it's, it definitely is different. You know, with the U.S. Attorney's Office, mostly my cases I was on all by myself. Um, you're doing them all by yourself. Whereas at a firm, they're generally, you know, there are other lawyers. You're on a team with partners, associates, folks up and down the chain. Uh, so it's, it's uh, you know, well, you don't go to court as much, I suppose, when you're uh, at a firm. And the cases are sometimes meatier and have, well, they're just, uh, you know, they're big both places. It's kind of too early to really know the differences, except here I'm definitely working with colleagues more on a day-to-day basis. At the U.S. Attorney's Office, my cases were mine. And other than working with law enforcement agents from FBI or Homeland Security, you know, those are your partners. Here you have internal partners. So maybe a little bit more uh, collegial in the sense you're, you have teams here. But that's not every case, and every case is different. Are you pretty good about delegating responsibilities? Um, you're gonna have to, I'm going to have to learn. Yeah, uh, right. you know, that's the U.S. Attorney's Office, the U.S. Attorney's Office, you really don't delegate because right. you are the partner and you are the most junior person. You're making the binders, and you're also writing, you know, the direct and opening, direct, you know, cross examinations. Here, there are different levels of folks. So yeah, I think you're going to have to learn to do that. But uh, so it goes. All right. So last one. When you when you said you were working at the in the um, U.S. Attorney's Office, and you're working with the FBI and other government agencies. How much of your conversations with friends outside the office just resulted in you saying, yeah, I can't talk about that? <laughs> uh, probably less than somebody in the military. No, I mean, you know, you can't talk about what's happening in ongoing investigations, and that's not only to protect the integrity of the investigation, but also it's fair to the people who are being investigated, because if they're not ultimately charged, it's not fair to have, like, AUSAs gossiping about these potential crimes. So, how often? Not really. I mean, people, enough cases were already indicted, already charged, and therefore already public. If family or friends were asking about cases, they would ask about the ones they already knew of from the paper. Mm-hmm. They wouldn't ask about, you know, what's in the hopper, what are you working on in the grand jury, because those are things you obviously can't, I, I wouldn't have been able to tell them. But I'd say there were enough, uh, enough stuff to talk about that was public that no one would ask what was going on in the grand jury. All right, bud. I appreciate your time. Thanks. Thanks, Noah. Follow James on Twitter at James underscore Petkin, P-E-T-K-U-N, as he's starting to provide color on some of his cases at the U.S. Attorney's Office. James and I met on a trip to Israel in 1999. He was part of a soccer team. I was playing tennis. And a group of us traveled the country, seeing the sights, being immersed in the culture, and playing in tournaments all over the country. And even then, when he was a rising high school senior, I was a year behind, he was always thinking about consequences maybe foreshadowing his future career, one of the reasons why we got along so well and continue to do so. I also appreciate James being a loyal listener of the podcast. Now for the rate and review plea, please do it. It's so easy on iTunes. Also, please subscribe and tell your friends. You can follow me on Twitter at Noah Kozlov, C-O-S-L-O-V, and on Instagram at Wawa Run. If you don't know Wawa, make it up to me by giving the podcast a five-star rating and a strong review. Thanks for taking the time to join us on the follow-up. The follow-up is a production of Vocal. For more information and more programming, please visit vocalnow.com. That's V-O-K-A-L-N-O-W dot com.